could be better than preaching the word and smelling like gasoline while you do it. You know, after my, my daughter turned three, uh, turns three tomorrow, and so we had a princess party yesterday, so there's a lot of, a lot of pink and a lot of girls in my house, and so I just figured I needed some gasoline on stage with me today just to overcompensate for all the pink yesterday. Anyway, um, hey, welcome to South. We're glad that you're here. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we're going to be uh, digging in. Matthew chapter 12. As I was uh, studying this passage this week, I, I had planned the series out and, and included this passage in it. And um, this week I thought about changing it. Because I started studying, and this is a difficult passage, and I thought, Ryan, if you're doing a, a series where you get to choose what you do, don't choose the hardest passages, you know? Go with the, this one. Um, I really sense that God wanted us to hear, and it's hard. It's hard. Um, as I was thinking about where to go with this passage, I had a, uh, just remembered um, going um, up to a cabin a few weeks ago with my family, and, and at this cabin there was a, a fire pit out that overlooked this lake. It was just this a beautiful scene. And so we decided that with our kids, uh, one of the evenings we were going to make s'mores. And so um, that is a, that's a dad's job to get the fire going. Um, and so uh, every dad in there, you know, you know that, that when there's a fire to be made, you're, it's your job to get it going. And so I did that. I got all the, all the wood and I got the kindling and I was, I was ready. And I tried for probably like 20 minutes to get the stinking fire going. And I'm like, is this wood wet? What's going on? And it was the major fail of the trip because my kids got distracted. I mean, they're, they're four years old and two years old at the time. And they're like, their attention span is not and so you got to get that fire going quick and i i failed they were playing baseball with the marshmallows before we could have had any chance to make s'mores and for about 20 minutes after the initial getting the fire going the the fire just sort of smoldered like there were some um coals being made underneath but zero flames i mean it was i i felt like i needed to apologize you know um and, and i started to think of that as i looked at this passage this week I think my faith, can I be honest with you for, for just a moment? And that doesn't mean that I'm going to lie to you the rest of the time, but can I, um, <laughs> can I be honest with you? I think my, my faith feels like that sometimes, where it's just sort of smoldering. You know, where there's some like, there's some, there's some things that I'm wrestling with. There's some, there's some wrestling with God where I'm going, God, I don't get why you're doing this. And I don't get God, why you don't see things my way and come through the way that I want you to. And God, I just, I I just don't understand. Sometimes it feels like, like my faith is just smoldering. And I think there's two ways to look at Jesus. And there's two ways to look at the words of Jesus for people that have a, a smoldering, at, at times struggling faith. Like, does Jesus come with the pitcher of water that can easily douse out the smoldering faith? I mean, because that's a lot of the way a lot of people view Jesus is, is hey, if you have little faith. Um, or... Or does Jesus come with the fuel to ignite faith? I mean, which one is it? Because I don't think you can come with both. I think Jesus comes with one or the other. He doesn't come with water and fuel. I think he comes with one. One of those. 
And I want to explore today, what does it look like to interact with Jesus in a way where we receive the fuel of faith that I think he wants to give all of us? Because he's not the kind of God that comes and says, hey, you're, you're struggling. All right, I'm just going to pile on. He actually comes and does just the opposite. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we need a little bit of background before we jump in. Matthew chapter 12. And here's sort of what's going on. Starting in verse 9. It says, and he went from there. This is after he made this great declaration that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's now going to go and paint them a picture of what it means to be Lord of the Sabbath. To be over the Sabbath. To have the Sabbath that serves you, not you serving the Sabbath. And he went out from there and he entered into a synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, this is the Pharisees, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? That's their intention this whole time. We're going to set Jesus up. We're going to try to back him into a corner. We're going to try to pin him down so that we can accuse him. I mean, isn't that, it's not ridiculous. I mean, they just end up looking stupid every time they do it. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? And they look around and say, well, none of us. Oh, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And we may go, well, yeah. Duh. But for them, for them, this was earth-shattering, world-changing type of things because they weren't able to do anything on the Sabbath, good or evil. It was just this day of neutrality. And Jesus, look at what happens. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Which if you go back and read, the original intent of Sabbath is to restore and bring about health. But the Pharisees, they went out and they conspired against him on how to destroy him. It's not funny. You heal on the Sabbath. You pour fuel on the flicker of faith on the day you're not supposed to. And we decide right then and there, we're going to take you down. Verse 15. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all in order and he ordered them not to make him known a lot there we don't have time this morning i'm sorry this was to fulfill what the prophet isaiah spoke here we go and this is matthew matthew loves to quote from the prophet isaiah he often does it in ways where if you go back and you read what isaiah originally wrote you don't want matthew teaching a hermeneutics course in seminary but Inspired by the Spirit of God, it's obvious that this is one of the original intents of Isaiah and God's Spirit on Isaiah when he wrote it. And so you can go back and read this and go, I didn't see that coming. Well, neither did anybody else, but here's what he says. This was to fulfill what the prophet spoke in Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice, rightness, restoration to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Isn't that interesting? He will not 
you know, well, not Coral. He's not going to be a guy that gets into a lot of loud fights. He's going to make his point, and his point's going to sort of stand on its own. Have you ever been around somebody that um, elevated the volume because the content just wasn't there? That they said it louder than maybe it would make it more true. Well, Jesus is so convinced, Isaiah says, that he will not quarrel, he will not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's going to have this quiet confidence because he knows that he knows that when you elevate the volume, you can try to convince somebody, but it really won't transform anyone. And his goal is not just to convince. His goal is to transform. I love the way that the commentator William Barclay puts it when he says this. In Jesus, there is a quiet, strong serenity of one who seeks to conquer by love, not by strife of words. So make no mistake about it, when this passage talks about Jesus, he is waging war, but he's not waging war in the way that people thought that he would. It's, a, it's more subtle, and yet it's more effective. He goes on. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, in all the verses that I studied this week, this was the one that I sensed God saying, drill down. Drill down here and, and, and draw out for people what it looks like and what it means for Jesus to come with fuel to ignite faith rather than water to extinguish the smoldering wick. Because I think so often Jesus is painted as this sort of stoic, unemotional person that just sort of went around shaking his head at people. You're not doing it the right way. You're not going about that the right way. And, and oh man, you, you screwed up again. And so when we go to Jesus, oftentimes the way that our, our mind's eye views him is not longing to pour fuel on the flickering wick of faith that so many of us often live with. It's, come on, you can do a little better. Come on, you can give a little bit more. Come on, you can, you, can, you can work a little bit more. You can conquer a little bit more sin. You can do a little bit more for my kingdom. And I wonder if that picture has been so readily available in our own mind that we've forgotten that the scriptures actually teach something completely different. He will not break the bruised reed, the person that's hurting, the person that's in pain. He longs to restore, not to push over the edge. The smoldering wick, he will not Quench. He's going to pour fuel on the flicker of faith. He's not going to snuff it out. There's a story in John chapter 8 where this woman was caught, caught, caught in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees bring her out and, and, the, and they want to stone him. And Jesus, they call Jesus and say, Jesus, what should we do about this? The law says to stone her. And he says, hey, whichever one of you is without saying, you throw the first stone. And they all leave one by one, the scriptures say. 
And Jesus walks over to this woman and says, Woman, do they not condemn you? You see, at this point, doesn't Jesus have a choice to make? Do they, do they not condemn you? Well, I do. Because you're wrong. That's not what he says. Do they not condemn you? She looks around and no one's there and she says, well, I guess not. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And he just ignites this faith in this broken woman who has little to nothing left to give. You see, the Pharisees, they focused on lack. They focused on what was absent. They focused on what was not there that, quote-unquote, should have been there. But Jesus was completely different. Jesus had this ability to look at the, the fire of faith burning in each one of us and say, listen, I know it's not showing flame right now, but with a little little, a little, little oxygen, a little fuel, it could just take off. Please hear me this morning. Some of you coasted into this parking lot. Metaphorically speaking. And if you, you and if it's real, if it's literal, I have some fuel for you. But spiritually, I'd like to give you some fuel too. Jesus longs to ignite that flicker of faith. He longs to pour the fuel of his grace and his mercy and his love on that which you think is close to burning out. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. He treats with profound sympathy those who are exhausted. And those who are at the end. I mean, just before this passage, he says, If anyone is weary, come to me. Come to me. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you life. I will fuel your soul. How have we lost that message? How have we lost? How does our picture of Jesus look like with his arms crossed rather than his arms open? Why do we so often view him as holding the, the pitcher of water ready to douse the flicker of faith because it's not enough and we're not radically committed instead of him saying, I want to walk with you, I want to build you, I want to stoke into flame that which is dying. You see, here's the truth of the matter. It's that Jesus came to awaken hope, not to condemn unbelief. Jesus came to awaken hope, not to condemn unbelief. In the verse that follows, the most popular verse, at least in football stadiums, in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 17, says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be, the world might be saved through him. Well, that sounds a lot more like fuel than it does like water. That he might save the world. That he might ignite faith in the world. Friends, what does it look like to be the type of people that embrace this view of living in the life and the power and the spirit of Jesus to see flickers of faith 
and people that God, through his Holy Spirit, might cause us and allow us to be igniters of rather than dousers of unbelief. What might that look like? See, Jesus here is reminding us that you can do one or the other with your life. You can bring fuel to the party or you can bring water. You can remind people of the goodness of the gospel in every situation that their life encounters. When they share their sin with you, you can talk about his grace and his mercy that's wooing them back. Or you can tell them to work a little bit harder and try a little bit more. I love, I love, I love this picture of Jesus. He's the master at seeing the flicker of faith. And my hope and and my prayer and my conviction is that the Holy Spirit might stoke that in you this morning. He's a master at seeing that flicker of faith. And as verse 21 says, and in his name, the Gentiles, the, the nations will hope. So he's not going to extinguish unbelief. He's going to ignite faith. That's what Matthew says. Well, he goes on. He goes on. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke, and the man saw. And all of the people were amazed, and you would have been too. Can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the long-awaited one that we've hoped for, that we've built our lives around? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only Beelzebul, the devil, the prince of demons. It's by his power that this man casts out demons. Now that's a big stretch, isn't it? I mean, some people say he's the son of God. Some people say he's the devil. The option Jesus takes off of the table is that he's a normal guy or a good teacher or a prophet. Everybody there gets that. You have to do something with Jesus. You have to do something with his words. You have to do something with his life. A good teacher, simply a prophet, is a non-option. I think they're right. He's either the devil or he's the son of God. One of the two. And they're going, he's the devil. He's the devil. We cannot embrace what he's teaching because he doesn't look like what we hoped he would look like. And so Pharisees are these professionals at carrying around. I mean, a guy just was healed. He was blind and he sees, he was mute and he talks and they go, nope, it's by the devil. The guy with the withered hands giving high fives going, I don't know, I don't think so. And so Jesus both beautifully, powerfully, and humorously responds to the Pharisees. Here's what he says. Knowing their thoughts. Now, okay, just a quick time out. That should both terrify us this morning and free us this morning. Because it's not just that he knows their thoughts, he knows yours too. Okay, so why should it terrify us? Well, well, because um, I know my thoughts sometimes. 
I mean, I know my thoughts all the time, but I mean, sometimes my thoughts are unhealthy and maybe even unbiblical and untrue. And I know my thoughts sometimes. And yet, isn't that one of the most freeing things in the world? That you don't have to play games with God. That you can't fake him out. That if you're angry with him, he knows it already. If you're broken, he knows it. If you're bruised, he knows it. If you're on the flicker of faith, you don't need to say anything, he knows it. And so much of religion is built around pretentious games that we, where we don't really believe that that is true. He knows already, so let's just honestly go to him. Not trying to clean ourselves up, but just to go to him. Knowing their thoughts, he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. That's true. The nation who's at a, in a civil war will not be able to stand. It will crush itself. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So he goes, hey, listen, the demons are part of Satan's army, right, guys? And they're like, yeah. Well, if I'm casting them out, doesn't that mean I'm against Satan? And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Huddle up. I, I think this was a, we're going to call a two-minute timeout here. This is no, not a 30-second timeout. This is a full deal. Let's regroup. And then he says this. is brilliant. It's hilarious. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by the devil, by whom do your sons cast them out? They're going, he says, you're trying to do the same thing. Are you working with the devil's power too? And they're like, oh, we should have thought this through a little bit more. (laughs) Stupid. Whose idea was this anyway? He says this. Therefore, your own sons, they'll be your judges. Oh, man. What's Jesus saying? I think what the Pharisees thought was, hey, if we're not there, then neither is God. Like, if we don't show up to help, then God doesn't either. And when we show up, God shows up with us. And since this is happening, apart from us, and it's powerful, and it's moving people, and it's changing people, but we're not a part of it, well, then that's an issue. And we have to redefine where that power comes from, because we know that God accompanies us. (laughs) I think it was one of their great mistakes. How do we prevent ourselves from becoming Pharisees and working Against God and his desire to ignite and awaken hope in people. Well, I think one of the ways that we do it is that we live lives and we become convinced that God is at work in places we are not. God is at work in places that we are not. You will never set foot in a place in a home, in a country, in a nation, in a people group where God is not somehow at work. Now, there, there may not be a gospel proclamation there. There may not be a church there. That may be why you are sent 
And some of you will be sent. That may be why you're sent, to, to point out the reality that God has been at work. Not that he shows up with you, but that he's been present for a long time. You just get to point it out. Uh, look at the way that Jesus responds when people have this similar discussion. He says, uh, someone's healed on the Sabbath and says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered that my father is working until now, and I am working. And he'll always be working. His glory, his majesty fills how much of the earth? All. All. You see, this should be the, one of the most freeing things you hear all day. Because you know that in your family situation that you think is hopeless, God is at work. You know that in your neighbor that you haven't talked to about faith yet and you're nervous and you're scared that, that there's a, that there, God is stirring in them. There's a reason that you live right next door to them. When you show up, you are not the first person. You are not the first thing to show up to point to God. God has been pointing to himself in their life for a long time. See, we get to join with God in what he's doing we got to join with him. we got to partner with him. See, God is at, the Pharisees messed this up. They thought when they showed up, God showed up. How arrogant. But how much of my life do I live in the same, under the same guise? I love this quote from Dallas Willard, and he says this in his great book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, to his, Jesus' eyes, this is a God-bathed, God-permeated world. It's a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control, though he obviously permits some of it, for good reasons, to be for a little while otherwise than he wishes. Until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and an event glorious with his presence, the word Jesus spoke has not been fully utilized. Sorry. Sorry. Has not been, should be been, fully seized. See, the Pharisees were far more concerned with their system, with their way that they interacted with God, than they were with the movement of God. See, when, a, when God moves in a movement of God, you can't control that. You can't manage that. And isn't that a little bit scary for us? And so they say to Jesus, now Jesus, you aren't allowed to do that. The Pharisees, they celebrate their success, but Jesus and his followers are designed to celebrate kingdom success. Kingdom success. So that means that we should celebrate the fact that God is working and moving in Littleton, Denver, Centennial, in all these areas. I think we should, we should rejoice and celebrate that Calvary Inglewood just planted a church in Littleton last Sunday. We should, we should celebrate that. We should like it on Facebook and send them some messages and say we're praying for you guys. But it's not, but it's not south. But it's, who cares? It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. It's God working and moving to draw people to himself. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted to celebrate their own success. If, if they would have driven out that demon, there would have been a party. But because Jesus does, well, that can't be of God. That can't be. Of God. See, I think the Pharisees were far more interested in defending their turf than they were in taking ground. They were far more interested in defending their turf 
They're going to squelch out unbelief. They're going to hold to true doctrine. They're going to hold to, to right faith and right belief. And people that were wrong, they were going to... I think Jesus was way more interested in taking ground than he was in defending turf. I think Jesus hates the, the um, prevent defense. Probably football fans out there. You know, remember when the Broncos used to go into the prevent defense and you'd be like, no, you're going to lose the game. Why would you do that? Dan Reeves, stop it. No. Why? Were you just trying to not lose ground? But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Followers of Jesus, we take ground. We don't try not to lose it. We are on the offense. Actually, biblically, and this isn't, this is for free this morning, but biblically, uh, the, the scriptures say in Matthew chapter 16, I think it's verse 18, that the gates of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, now that means that if hell has, if hell has gates that it can open and close, that those aren't, those aren't going anywhere. They're not moving forward. Hell has as much ground as it's going to take. But the church is on the move. The church is on the move. That's very different. That's very different. That's, that's working with fuel to ignite faith, not trying to just defend ground and squelch out unbelief. Very different. So here's the way it goes on. But if it's, and he's still responding to their claim that he's the devil. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he will plunder his house. His point, his picture is, is fairly simple if you just boil it down to uh, really just use his analogy. No one can come and rob you if you're there. He says, in order to come and to clear out the house, you would first have to bind the owner. And his point is that Satan was the owner, and he comes and he binds him so he can release to freedom the people that were in captivity. He makes this huge, massive, theological, spiritual point that there's a war waging in the world that we live in for your soul. And his point is that he's stronger. That he's bigger, that he's more powerful. And in contrast to the way that demons were often exercised back in this day through incantation, through crazy witch doctor uh, rituals, and through yelling, Jesus comes in and he simply is more powerful. He's stronger. The Pharisees, they had a whole little ritual you needed to go to in order to release somebody from this type of oppression. And Jesus says, no, no, no. When I show up, it happens. It happens because the kingdom's coming. If we're going to be people that bring fuel to the party and not just squelch out people's faith, we need to know that freedom comes through a person, not through a program. Jesus shows up and people are changed. Hey, 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 here's the thing. Will you look up at me for just a second? It's the same today. It's the same today. When Jesus shows up, when people encounter the living God, they're changed. Religion creates steps and religion creates rules and it's eight steps to a better life and nine steps to finding freedom. There's one step. His name is Jesus. Jesus. 
His name is Jesus. And when he shows up, he's more powerful. He's bigger and he's better and he changes everything. You see, the irony is is that Jesus was coming to bind Satan and his religious quote-unquote followers were actually releasing him. And he says, I'm the strong man. Listen to the way that the book of Colossians puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you, that, that would be you too, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He sat aside, nailing it to the cross. That's a stronger man. Stronger than sin, stronger than death, bringing fuel, not dousing unbelief. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, the work of the evangelist isn't to twist anybody's arm. It's not to convince anybody. The primary work of an evangelist is to introduce people. To introduce people to Jesus. He's the one who moves. He's the one who works. He's the one who changes. He says this, whoever's not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. A lot to unpack there and and unfortunately I don't have the time this morning. So here's what we're going to do. This is how you bring fuel to the party. You look for ways to invite people in rather than reasons to keep people out. Look for ways to invite people in rather than ways to invite people out. Here's my conviction is that in any person you meet, you can find either faith to fuel or faith to douse. It may be a flicker. It may be just a, a, a inquisitive sort of thought. It may be a question that they're wrestling with or a hurt that they have. But what do you do with that gift that God reveals? Are we people who look for reasons to keep others out or ways to invite people in? Are we bridge builders or are we divider makers? You see, here's the truth that Jesus points out. There's only two kingdoms. There's only two kingdoms and there's no neutral ground. There's no spiritual Switzerland. You can write that in your notes. You can tweet that out. There's no neutral ground. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. And I want to say this in all love and and desire to see you walk in freedom. But if you come in on the fence, there's no such thing as on the fence with God. He says you're either working with me or you're working against me. There's no non-working. And through the Holy Spirit, my prayer has been this whole week that there be some people that would recognize and see the truth that the scriptures point out that there's no other name under heaven by which people, men, must be saved other than Jesus. There's a war for your soul. And Jesus is stronger. 
And he is able, and whatever is going on in your life, maybe this morning, all you recognize and all you see is that just maybe, just maybe God could work in this situation, in this sin that I'm wrestling with, in this doubt that I have. And he's inviting you this morning. Will you just, will you run to me? Will you run to me? There's no such thing as neutral ground. Okay. Now we get into the fun stuff. Therefore. Now, this is going to be, this is a famous scripture. People write books about this. And so I'm going to, in five minutes, going to wrap this bad boy up. Okay. Uh, Many people have heard about the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? And Jesus is going to address that here. Therefore, so because of what you've just seen, that the Pharisees attribute the work of God to the work of Satan, that the Pharisees see God on the move and are unwilling to join him. They're unwilling to trade in their religious presuppositions of what the Messiah should look like for the way that God actually moves. Therefore, I tell you, And he's speaking to the Pharisees. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now that seems like an absolute statement. Every. He's going to put in a little qualifier here. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, does that mean the time where I was angry with God because God didn't show up the way that I wanted him to, and I shut my door and I said, God, I'm angry, I'm ticked off, and I don't want anything to do with you. Leave me alone. Is that the unforgivable sin? Well, let me back up for a moment because this passage is actually a lot more about forgiveness than it is unforgiveness. And God is a lot more about forgiveness than he is unforgiveness. Look at the way that the psalmist writes, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. It's a good promise. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. That seems like a lot of iniquity. All. So what do we do with Jesus's statement? See, God is a God who forgives the unfaithful. He forgives hatred. He forgives anger. He forgives adultery. He forgives murder. He forgives it all. But what he doesn't forgive, and hear me on this, is the unwillingness to turn to him. Because forgiveness is only found in him. See, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the unpardonable sin, is committed when people willfully persist in unbelief, willfully persist in unbelief, and deliberately reject the counsel of God. And God says to them, all right, I will give you over to the direction that you want to go. J.C. Ryle, I think, um, accurately puts it when he says this, that the uh, unpardonable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the union of the clearest head knowledge of the gospel with the deliberate rejection of it and the deliberate choice of sin in the world. 
That's what, if you look at the Pharisees, that's what they did. They saw God working. They saw God moving. And they're unwilling to declare him as Lord, to bow their hearts to him, to submit their systems to him, and to follow after him. And he says, listen, that's the one thing I can't forgive. Your unwillingness to find solace, to find hope, to find refuge, to find forgiveness in me is the one thing that I can't forgive. And it's also, ironically, the one thing that will change everything in your life. I read this quote over and over again in in every single commentary that I read on this passage. And and so I don't know who's originally attributed to. So you can attribute it to me if you want. (laughs) But somebody wrote, (laughs) those who are troubled with the fear that they may have committed this unpardonable sin, most assuredly have not done so. So the desire, that even the question is the smoldering flicker of faith. And he says, they're there. If that's where they're at, then they haven't committed this unpardonable sin. How do we phrase this in a way that would be in the positive for us, not positive in that it's good, but positive in that it allows us to move forward, I think that this is what God would say to us. Cultivate. Be intentional about tilling the ground and the soil of your heart to hear and respond to the Spirit of God. See, I don't think most of us are the type that blaspheme the Holy Spirit, where we say, I'm not following you, God, and I don't like you, and I'm not this, and I'm not that. And most of us aren't the ones that would deliberately reject the gospel in our life. We're we're here this morning, okay? But I think we've fallen into this trap. I think I've fallen into this trap of not outwardly rejecting, but inwardly ignoring. The Spirit's still small voice inviting me. Showing me his grace. Inviting me to experience his mercy. To hear his words that bring life. That that Christ in us is described as the hope of glory both now and forever. And I think it's the whisper of encouragement to a lot of us, not the hope of glory. And you see, when you show up and you're a person that hears and responds to God and have a heart that longs to hear him speak and to know him more intimately and more deeply, you show up in the world carrying an invitation from God. Did the smoldering flicker of faith in your life, of hope in your life, of thought that just maybe God could intercede in this desperate situation? And you become the type of person that shows up with fuel to a smoldering, flickering fire, not water that douses out the little, tiny flicker of faith. I don't know about you, but I want to join God in what he's doing in our world. I want to work with him and not for and not against him. I want to work with him even when the way that he works doesn't fit my theological grid. Even when the way that he works doesn't doesn't fit my denominational background, I still want to be a person that says, "God, you are moving and you are working and people are finding freedom in Jesus and I want to celebrate that." 
And I want to pour whatever fuel you give me in my life with whomever you give me to use it with. I want to help people meet Jesus that brings freedom and ignites faith and hope in him. I pray that we would be a church. I think as a church, we have a choice. Are we going to condemn unbelief? Or are we going to be a church that Jesus uses to awaken hope in people? My prayer is that he'd use us for his name and for his glory. And that many, many, many people would find hope and would find healing and would find refuge through you, through you, his church. Let me pray for us.